Hello, Stephanie. Hey, Leslie. Good to see you again. It's very good to see you too. I'm really glad that we have a chance to sort of talk and catch up a little bit today and to spur me to have an opportunity to ask you about your experiences. Because a couple of months ago, we had a conversation for your podcast. And um, that the timing was interesting for me because we had actually scheduled that conversation prior to me putting out that Antioch video. And so much happened right before we talked that you were really the first person I was exploring some of that with, I think. Um, well, one of the first people that I was really exploring that particular time in my life with. And so that was a really interesting discussion and I enjoyed speaking with you then and you know, it's great to catch up. Wow. And and now here you are, so much has unfolded since then. I think there was probably enough time lapse between the time we recorded that conversation and the time I put it out there because I have a bit of a lag. I know your situation's been rapidly evolving, but it seems like people are really hungry for your message and which, you know, has a lot of overlap with my message, right? The they're hungry for thoughtful, caring mental health professionals to be sounding the alarm like there's something wrong. Our our entire profession here is being captured. And if we don't start talking about this with the, the level of urgency that it deserves, there won't be a counseling profession left in 10 years that's even recognizable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really well said. I think that it really can't be overstated how concerning this is. And um, I, I I have been, I was initially really surprised by the, the feedback that I got. I was surprised by the attention that the video that I put out received. I really thought it was going to circulate like through CTA and it was going to be something that we just all sort of talked about for a few days and then it went away and it was just going to be my one attempt to sort of put this info out there, what was really worrying me about where we were going and where this program was going and the profession generally. But the response has been, as you say, it, it was really, uh, I, I think people are so aware that something is wrong and they really want to have these authentic discussions about what it is and what we can do and and just the state of things. Yeah, I bet you get a lot of very similar emails to the messages I hear, right? Just one therapist in training after another or therapists further into their career, but especially it's it's the young bright you know, the people who go into this for the right reasons, who are, who are thoughtful people and they're encountering this stuff and they're having very similar experiences to what you've been having. And, um, I think that, you know, there's people who are starting to have the conversations that we really need to be having to move this forward. Like, um, I, I'm sorry, I actually don't know how to pronounce her name. I'm probably going to butcher it, but do you know, Soad Tabrizi? She's, uh, her first name is spelled S-O-A-D. I'm not sure if it's SOAD or I should have looked that up. I didn't think I was going to talk about her, but she's a conservative therapist who is, you know, and I'm moderate, I'm politically homeless, but she has a lot of really valid points. And I know that, you know, she's been vocally talking about um, all these therapists who are coming to her expressing their fear, right? Fear, and it all comes down to fear of losing your license. And we work so hard for that license. Now you've come of age in the, in the counseling profession at an interesting time where you're getting to decide right now that you're not going to pursue licensure. If you're not going to, I mean, it sounds like you're not. Um, and a lot of people are kind of like, do I follow through on, you know, getting that LPC, that LMFT, whatever that license is, or do I just go a completely different path and just take a leap of faith that somehow all this money I've spent on grad school is 
you know, that I, that I can use that, the people are going to believe that, that I have valid credentials, that my reasons for not getting licensed are valid. Um, you know, and for me being several years down the line in terms of where I'm at in my career, it's like, well, you know, I have all that history behind me. And if I end up being the canceled therapist, um, I got canceled for the right reasons, you know? <laughs> um, but I think people are afraid to lean into their authority. I think because therapists are just such nice people in general, we're kind, we're deferential, we're good listeners. And I think a lot of people are afraid to say, you know what, I have this much experience. I have this much training. And based on my experience and training, this is what's wrong with how it's going. And even if the regulatory bodies disagree with me, well, I disagree with them, you know, and I think I have just enough years of experience under my belt that I have the confidence to say that. And I feel for people who have the exact same intuitions and moral instincts that I do, but don't, you know, quite feel like they have, that they have that solid ground under their feet, which is interesting that I say solid ground because that's the name of the community you started. Mm -hmm. How's that going by the way? Oh, it's going, it's going really well. It's um, we're, we started launched in the beginning of January and this was sort of an offshoot from um, peer support groups we were doing for counterweight previously. I don't know if you were a part of that. Counterweight, okay. No, I wasn't a part of that, but someone invited me to something else recently related to that. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great group. And we had been hosting peer support groups. They decided to sort of go a different way with it. And so Jody and Jen and David and I started discussing how can we bring this back and, and make this, this needed resource accessible to people. So it's been really, fantastic. And I look forward to seeing where it goes. But I think it's really interesting what you bring up about um, tapping into your own authority, trusting yourself, having the confidence. And I think something that I, I'd love to explore this because I don't really know how to fully articulate it, but there's something about the gaslighting, the thought reform process of being told things that you know are not true, that really, that really seem very wrong and, and do not resonate. Yeah. That sets people in a loop of questioning themselves. They, they just go through this loop. I remember being in it. You're, you're like, no, that's not, that's not true. But maybe, maybe everybody else knows something I don't. And then you right. kind of in this process of confirming, reconfirming. And there's a point where for some of us, we, we gain enough confidence to go ahead and say, no, I'm going to, I'm going to call BS on this. Yeah. But I think that that's different for every person. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Uh, well, I think you nailed it when you said, maybe they know something I don't know, mm -hmm. right? Because that is, that that's that deferential spirit that I was talking about that is really an appropriate attitude to have in so many other situations. Mm -hmm. And every time I've looked back on that training I went to in maybe 2017, 2018, um, the training in so-called gender affirming care, um, you know, you, you hear these things that don't make sense and that are kind of shocking. And, and if you're a nice person, if you have the temperament of the average therapist, you go, they must know something I don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, when we go to trainings, uh, a lot of what we learn confirms our suspicions or puts words to things. We're like, oh, that's the language for that thing I've picked up on. Awesome. But every now and then we're surprised. Every now and then it's like, wow, I wouldn't have guessed that or I learned something new today. And we're grateful for those moments, right? Because they help us, um, you know, remain humble 
and learn from people with different professional experiences than we we have, right? And so I think that was my first reaction. And it was probably a lot of therapists' first reaction to these trainings where you learn things that intuitively don't sit right. You're just like, they must know something I don't know. Mm-hmm. And and I think we're also trained to be deferential to, you know, respecting people's so-called lived experiences. And so when you hear about this idea of the the magical trans child who you know, somehow mysteriously defies the laws of nature because they're born knowing who they are at a young age. They don't, you know, their process of identity isn't as malleable as the average teenager. No, no. If they tell you at 13 who they are, no, in this case it applies and it's always going to be true. You know, like you hear, you're like, oh, there's this magical new type of human that has this radically different experience, but who am I to say that that's not a thing? Right. So it's, it's that deferential nature. It's that open-mindedness, empathy, agreeableness, conscientiousness, all the traits that in many other regards make us great at what we do, um, really set us up to be trapped here. And so you go, they must know something I don't know. Right. And for me, it was years of, they must know something I don't know until I reached the point where that turned around. And it's like, actually, I know something they don't know. And that's when I started standing on the ground of my own authority and it's and that's what's happening in the emperor's new clothes right when all the people are looking at a man that looks naked to them and that's what their eyes their very own senses are telling them that's a naked emperor right there but i've been told to believe that if you're a good person you can see his beautiful clothes well other people must know something i don't know they must be better people than me i should keep my mouth shut lest i be judged a bad person found out for who i really am and it takes the innocence of the child who has nothing to prove, the child that hasn't been conditioned to having to prove what a good or knowledgeable person he is Mm -hmm. to just say, no, this is what my eyes are telling me that gives us permission to do the same. And so this whole gender affirming care is actually, it's Orwellian, it's sex denying harm is what it is. Mm -hmm. And it is exactly what it looks like. It is, yes, it is removing healthy body tissue from, from young people to treat a, a temporary mental distress. That is exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no extra magical layer that you have to go through all these rabbit holes to figure out, you know, like I have a pretty high IQ and those of us with high IQs, we get caught up in this too, because we're trying to make it work, right? We love going down rabbit holes. We love complex philosophies. Right. And, and, you know, sometimes it's the people with the higher IQs that are more easily indoctrinated into cults because their, their minds need something to chew on. And this gives them a lot to chew on, but actually it's very simple at the end of the day, right? All this, this complexity is smoke and mirrors to distract you and to teach you to deny the reality of your own sense perception. Oh boy. I'm on a soapbox. No, it's great. It's great. And I, going back to something you said there that really stood out to me when you said the innocence of the child who has nothing to prove i thought about the vulnerability the particular vulnerability of people who have been um, educated into a professional networks where they have everything to prove and how common it is to have sort of an imposter syndrome within that where you're trying to be and trying to seem and it's everything to prove and so if everybody around you seems to be agreeing with something that you don't think is right, you're going to doubt yourself. And it's part of that imposter process, that imposter syndrome process. And I remember what that was for me when I was in this gender affirming care training. I remember the skeletons I had in my own personal closet in the time, at the time, the things that I was ashamed of, 
the things that I was afraid. If anybody knew this about me or saw this side of me, they would judge me as being unworthy of this profession, you know? And when you're carrying shame about something in your personal life that's not quite right, which there was something in my personal life that was not quite right at that time, you know? And when you're carrying that shame, you're always afraid that people can see you're like, oh, my colleagues, could they tell that I was just crying on my break? You know, <laughs> like, like there's that, like, I have to pre present as professional as possible. And for me, that gave me something to prove that I did not want any other situation coming up at work where I felt like I stuck out like a sore thumb. I didn't want to be the problem child because I'm already somebody who attracts negative attention in this or that way. That was my own personal insecurity that kept me thinking I have to agree to this. They must know something I don't know. But I bet that at least half the people in that room had their own insecurity, you know, whether it was, I don't get my notes in on time or my, my scores are low from this uh, metric system we had for tracking patient outcomes, or this is the feedback I got from our, you know, quality management team last time they reviewed my notes mm -hmm. or oops, I forgot to email that person back or, Ooh, I had a conflict with that one employee in the break room. And I hope they didn't tell anybody, or <laughs> it could be so many things, yeah. right. That, that each person has their own insecurities that they're afraid of being found out and that keep them silent. And I think, I think this is one of the flaws of our profession in general is that if you get too deep in the mindset of the counseling profession, uh, depending on what kind of culture you're, what subculture you're in within the field. Um, there's kind of like a fear of having a personality, a fear of having any flaws because everything is diagnosed, medicalized, problematized, pathologized. And then you, you kind of feel like if you're a therapist, you don't have room to have a personality. You don't have room to be a person. And I, and I think that's just kind of a toxic aspect of the culture that I've learned to distance myself from. And just kind of give myself permission of like, no, I'm going to have a personality and it's going to come with trade-offs and the things that some people love about me are going to have a flip side of the coin that make other people hate me. Those traits go hand in hand. You know, I'm very impulsive. That's a personality flaw. It's gotten me into trouble in situations where I've blurted something out that I couldn't take back in the wrong situation. But also it means I trust my instincts. I'm very quick. And I, I say things that just pop into my mind that end up having beautiful outcomes. So I think therapists are afraid to be whole people and that the culture of our profession can be quite oppressive. And then that just sets us up for these indoctrination trainings to come in and tell us, here's how you're going to be a good person. Here's how you're going to be a good therapist. Don't ask any questions. Yeah. It's almost like a sterilization of the person. I mean, not in terms of, of taking out anything that could possibly be offensive or or flawed or rough edges. And when you're describing that impulsivity as a character flaw or a personality flaw, it's also something that's a charming, it lends an authenticity, you know? So those, those things, like you said, it's, there's trade-offs. There's it, it and, and if the fundamental helpful quality of therapy, the, the most helpful aspect of going and seeing a therapist or a counselor or a coach or anything is gonna be that authenticity of that relationship that you build together and the way that you learn to see yourself through that process of relationship building. So if there's, if the relationship is sterile and inauthentic, mm -hmm. I just, I don't know. I don't know what, how, how that changes the worth, the value of that process, but I imagine that it yeah. does.
I, I wanted to, well, so we kind of jumped right in and we bit off a lot of really juicy stuff, <laughs> but uh, I would love to maybe, uh, we're doing this backwards, but could you give a little bit of an intro, talk a little bit about, about who you are and how you ended up in this conversation and, and um, yeah, what's that? Great. Cause we have some overlapping listeners, but not everybody who watches your channel has encountered me before. So hello, if you're just meeting me for the first time, my name is Stephanie Wynn. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I have a small private practice online in Oregon. And, uh, in 2022, I sort of, uh, had a brief introduction to the status of micro celebrity in part triggered by, um, well, I launched a podcast and I write and I'm on Twitter and all that, but um, but my biggest claim to fame so far is uh, how I almost lost my license over um, being, you know, canceled by activists on the internet. So um, that's a thing that ha that I've been through, and I know a lot of people who listen to your channel are interested in these stories. So yeah, basically, I got mobbed by trans rights activists who uh, used my Twitter profile and things things I was saying on Twitter to accuse me to my licensing board of performing. <laughs> quote unquote, conversion therapy, which is a joke we could get into another time if you want. But um, basically I fought it off. I was fine. Um, and if you want to hear that story and you haven't heard that story, it's an episode 11 of my podcast. Um, it's called Debunking the Myth of Conversion Therapy. It's my story told to Helen Joyce. Um, and you can find that on YouTube. You can find that anywhere you get my podcast. My podcast is called You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist. Um, and I'll include links so, in the notes. So anybody who wants to, if you want to send me any particular episodes that stand out and we'll send a link to your channel as well. So cool. I want to find that. Great. Um, so since then, uh, I have been featured in the upcoming documentary, Affirmation Generation, and I've accepted a role as the associate producer. So I am the public face of the documentary, Not certainly not the only. Everyone in the documentary is potentially open to media appearances if there's anyone who wants to talk with any of our 60 transitioners or our uh, 12 leading experts in the field. We have uh, therapists uh, who most people are well familiar with, like Sasha Ayad, uh, Stella O'Malley and Lisa Marciano. We have Dr. William Malone, Dr. Lisa Lippman, um, Lisa Selin Davis, and several other experts. And I believe uh, over 50 studies that we looked at in creating this film. Um, so a big thing that I'm up to this year, 2023, is getting out there and talking to people about Affirmation Generation. Uh, it's coming out February 18th. You'll be able to stream it for free at affirmationgenerationmovie.com. And then uh, I'm also really encouraging people to consider arranging a screening of this for D-Trans Awareness Day on March 12th. Um, so March 12th, D-Trans Awareness Day. If you have just a couple of friends or family members or neighbors who you think would be open to learning a little bit more about the gender crisis, invite them over, have them into your living room and watch this film with them. Or if you have a bit more of a community, you have access to a venue, we'd love for you to invite your whole community. Um, so you can stream again for free starting February 18th, affirmationgenerationmovie.com. So it's a, an original feature documentary made by expert documentarians on the gender crisis. And I'm so proud of the film. I think it does a really excellent job of walking anyone through, no matter what your starting point, kind of walking you through understanding what detransitioners have been through and unpacking sort of how this came about, 
what the misconceptions are uh, in the, the medical and mental health professionals that have led us here and sort of warns of where things are headed. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, it sounds like you've been on quite a journey from that initial, uh, you didn't say what you did to get yourself in trouble with that trans activist mob, but I imagine you did you, you, you want and would love to hear about it. It sounds like I, you made some comments on Twitter. I don't remember what it was that I said. I think that um, I, I have now blocked thousands of accounts, but there was, uh, you know, pretty early in my emergence to Twitter, it was just, you know, the fact that I was posting things that challenge gender ideology, um, no matter how caringly, by the way, I mean, obviously I'm coming from a standpoint of wanting to protect these youth. Uh, you know, I mean, they say you hate trans people, you don't care about trans healthcare. No, I care a lot. I care enough to look into where this is all leading, right? And uh, it's not leading anywhere good because these young kids have no idea what they're signing up for with the medicalization, sterilization, lifelong medical patient stuff. You know, when people talk about suicide, it's like, well, you really want to set a person up for risk of suicide, try inducing chronic pain and disability and taking away their capacity to have a healthy, loving family life and, and then see where they end up in their thirties or forties. It's not, it's not pretty. So I'm, I'm worried. Mm-hmm. I'm as worried as it, as it comes about, you know, the epidemic of, uh, suicidal ideation and behavior in this population. And, and so I don't know if it was one of my tweets about that. Um, but at some point, like just a bunch of these trans rights activists found me and they're like, oh, she's a therapist and she isn't down with our narrative a hundred percent. Okay. We're going to go after her. And so they mass reported me to my licensing board back in December, 2021. And I proactively took steps. I reached out to my licensing board mm-hmm. and I was like, Hey, I'm writing an open letter to my board, the Oregon Board of Licensed Professional Counselors and Therapists, OBLPCT. Um, and you are going to be receiving a bunch of complaints from people who have, I don't know, they're on the internet. Um, there was a complaint from from one other person as well, but this person was uh, basically attended one session of my parent support group and then flipped out. And so they were either um, an undercover agent uh, on the TRA side or... Um, Well, I don't need to put in explicit terms what we know in the counseling field about people who um, meet you once and then do everything in their power to disparage your reputation. Because the same person who submitted a a licensing board complaint about me also left a bunch of nasty comments on my blog and sent pages and pages of nasty emails. And Mm -hmm. the only experience I ever had with this person, there were several other people there and none of them had the same experience as the person made the complaint. So you know, that situation is what it is, um, <laughs> sort of speaks for itself. And that complaint was dismissed out of hand. And I believe, you know, the fact of everything else that person did, oh, which also included contacting everyone on my resource list. I wrote a gender resource list that was just like, here are other people whose blogs you should read and, you know, things like that. And they went out of their way, contacting all these people on this list saying, Stephanie Wynn is so awful that you shouldn't even want her to recommend you because you, she's filthy. Don't be associated with her. <laughs> so anyway, reputational damage campaign. Yeah. And, um, so I survived that I survived every therapist's worst fear, right. Attacks on your license. And I lived to tell the tale. Unfortunately, I still have my license. I am aware it could happen again. Um, but at the same time, you know, even if things had gone differently, I still would have had a backup plan. I, and I think that therapists live in so much fear, but it's like, have you ever seen those 
um, CBT worksheets on decatastrophizing, right? Whereas it was like such a basic therapy tool that, um, you know, and I wasn't trained in a primarily CBT model. It was, you know, I, I was trained in much more, you know, humanistic, existential and somatic and systems and attachment. And then it was only when I was working in the field, I was like, oh, everyone expects you to practice CBT. Shoot, I didn't really focus on that. Okay, let me ground myself in CBT, right? But, you know, CBT tools are very practical and, and there's a worksheet anyone can download for free on the internet called Decatastrophizing. And it asks, okay, what's this thing that you're so afraid of? How likely is it to occur? If it did occur, how bad would it be? Have you ever been through anything similar? Have has anyone you admire been through anything similar? How would you cope? How did they cope? What what are your resources? What would you tell yourself? You know, basically like it helps you debunk the myth that this thing that you're worried could happen would absolutely destroy your life. Um and I think every therapist who's afraid of speaking out needs to do your do a decatastrophizing process with that. You know, because where I came to, and I didn't use the worksheet, this was all mental, but um, where I came to was the worst that could happen. I lose my license over this. And then, then that just gives me more attention for my podcasting and writing. And then people seek out my consulting who share the same concerns as you and I. So really there's no way to lose. I mean, yes, there would, I would be angry. I would be sad. I might even feel humiliated. Um, it would be, you know, mourning and it, it would be an adjustment. But I think that, um, like you, like we, earlier, we're talking about the sterilization, right? I think part of what it is to be a good therapist is to be an interesting human, not just a good person, but an interesting life. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, some of the older school influencers in the world of therapy, like Adler, right? This idea of self-actualization right? Uh, being an integral part of wellness, you know, and, and many great philosophers have remarked that you can suffer through a lot as long as you have meaning. So it's like, I, I have to take my own advice, right? My job as a therapist isn't just to support other people with their pursuit of meaning and self-actualization. It's to have a meaningful life myself. And I'd rather have this interesting story where I worked as a therapist for however many years before they finally came after my license because I, because I was guilty of wrong think, okay. you know, and if that's what's, if that's where my story goes, that's where my story goes, whatever I can handle it. Like I've gotten this far in life. I think that's a fascinating point. I think any of these points would be worthy of an entire discussion because that's, that's a, a different take than I've thought of, but I love how you put that. And I think it's so true because you, again, it comes back to, you want to be having a discussion with a real person. Yeah. Not just somebody who's in the role of almost an AI bot, who's going to just regurgitate diagnosis codes for you or, or <laughs> you know, sure, smart treatment plans, you know? So. Oh God, those AI bots. Have you seen those ads for those AI friends? No. Is that really a thing? Oh no. Oh, it's so creepy. It's like taking like sex dolls to the next level. Like I worry there's this whole generation of incels with their sex dolls and then and then their AI chat friends. Oh my god. And I've seen advertisements for this. I'm like, they are targeting the wrong person. I am not their demographic. I don't know why this is showing in my Twitter feed, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but this like chat friend where if you pay a low amount, it's just like a friendly, of course it's always a female, right? Like an attractive looking female. Um and you I mean, know if you pay thought was the boyfriend pillow the oh 
that has its arm around you when you sleep. That was my first thought. With the boyfriend okay. These people need to get better at marketing to women, I guess. But this, <laughs> but this is like, um, you know, I saw an advertisement that was clearly made for men. That was like, you know, if you pay $10 a month, you get this chat friend, right. Who's who is in one outfit, like kind of a librarian outfit. Right. But if you pay $90 a month, then she's in a French maid outfit and yeah, it's like, she'll flirt with you. Wow. Where have we come? Please people pursue self-actualization. If you don't, this is where you'll end up talking to a bot. (laughs) So, you know, that makes me wonder what, what do you see as the way that we move through this? What, where, what gives you hope and optimism in all of this? Um, those are some broad questions. Uh, nature rewards courage. Um, I think that the human spirit is just too resilient and too interesting. And I've met too many intelligent people. I mean, yeah, things are scary, but I guess part of it is that my, my professional obligation as a therapist, um, sort of includes me from falling into nihilism because I can't, I I can't afford to be nihilistic in the same way that a parent of a young child can't afford to be nihilistic. Like, I don't care how grim your worldview is. If you're raising a young child, you have to, it's just innate. It's built in to try to do everything in your power to make their life as good as possible and to give them hope. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think you know, I, I feel almost like a parental obligation toward my clients. Um, or I, it's a different type of obligation though, just a, that I am here to hold hope for them that they can find meaning struggling through their circumstances, whether or not what they're going through in therapy has anything to do with what my personal interests are or what I focus on on my podcast or what the documentary is about. Um, I think just the fact that my bread and butter for the last nine years has come from holding hope for people and helping them struggle through really difficult periods and believing in their capacity to get somewhere better with it because I have to, right? I have to do that for them. And, and there are times that I take leaps of faith on choosing my words to help instill leaps of faith for them, where I'm like, I see that this is where you're at right now. I see how grim it looks from here based on everything you've experienced so far. However, what I'm hearing you really want is all the way over here. And I can see that for you, but I can also see it's going to take work and it's going to take leaps of faith. And here are a few of the steps that you're able to identify right now that some part of you knows you should be taking if it's remotely possible to be over here. But what other choice do you have to not believe it's possible, right? And then what do you just do languish until you die? Right. So I think it's just years of being in that role for people and helping them struggle through difficult periods and and take those leaps of faith and get somewhere better that I just, I generalize that to my approach to life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that when I see people on Twitter posting really jaded nihilistic things about how the world is going to hell, I'm like, um, I think that they're overlooking their own agency. Mm -hmm. I, I, I credit my time being a new age hippie Um, (laughs) because I remember um, there being like a lot of emphasis during this period of my life on the throat chakra, 
Mm. And, uh, and the power of manifestation through what we imagine and what we speak. And I believe in using words carefully. I believe words have power. And actually, this is where I agree with a lot of leftists. I do agree words have power. I just disagree about the implications of that, right? I think that knowing that words have power, that words can paint images, I, I can speak words in my mind and you see something in your mind, that's magical, right? I can, you know, I mean, how many people gave up something they loved because of one mean teacher or parent saying you'll never be good, any good at that when they were eight years old, mm-hmm. right? Words are powerful. They can harm, they can heal, they can close down possibilities and they can open up possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I'm not going to go casting a spell with my words uh, that, that paints a picture of doom and gloom of a world I don't want to live in. I'm going to use the power I have. Yes, I'm just one person, but that's what my domain is. This is the body I'm responsible for. This is the mouth of the words that, you know, I'm responsible for what words come out of this mouth. So with this little piece of space that I've been allotted, um, I'm going to work on what I want to see in the world. And I should probably get around to that because <laughs> we don't have forever. Like what I want to see in the world is I want to see uh, healing and justice and reconciliation for the people who've been harmed by the uh, lie of so-called gender affirming care. So we're talking about detransitioners, whether or not they call themselves detransitioners. Um, you know, another term that I sometimes use, people have mixed feelings about this is survivors of gender malpractice. Cause I do believe it's malpractice. There are people who feel lost in transition. There are people who feel stuck. They don't know, should I be working? Should I be living through, uh, moving through the world as a man or a woman? I don't know because I'm a woman, but I'm also like 21 years old and bald and my voice is permanently deepened. Like what bathroom do I use? Shit. I mean, there are people in that situation, mm-hmm. you know, who am I to tell them? you should or shouldn't call yourself a detransitioner mm-hmm. or, you know, for a man who's had so-called bottom surgery, who's been on estrogen, who am I, you know, who am I to tell him he should go on testosterone if that's going to make it that much more painful to not be able to have sex because it increases his sex drive, but he doesn't have a penis. Who am I to tell anybody, any of these things, right? My point is that anyone who's been harmed by this stuff, anyone who's been lied to, which is everyone, who's caught up in it, um, faces a high rate of high likelihood of regret and a lot of mental health needs. And all of these therapists who are so busy signaling their allegiance to one way of looking at this issue are alienating everyone who's been harmed by it. And there is homicidal rage in some of the people who've been harmed by this stuff, the people who have to live with chronic pain and disability because they were exploited when they were young and vulnerable. Some of them want to murder the therapists and doctors that did this to them. So it is bad. Uh, When it comes to this population of detransitioners, they have some of the most acute mental health needs and physical health needs of any any age-matched population and the lowest levels of trust in doctors and therapists. Mm -hmm. That is such a crisis. Mm -hmm. You have a high acuity, high needs population with low trust Mm -hmm. in the people who are supposed to help them. And it's our fault that they don't trust us 
because we were too busy waving our flags and wearing our pronoun badges and putting our little, this is a safe space, rainbow triangle on our office door to realize that those who have had some kind of ideological shift only after it's too late for them physically to not make any changes to their bodies have have been harmed by everything that we remind them of when we do that you can't say i am so inclusive and i support the lgbtq when uh your potential client is a lesbian who didn't realize she was a lesbian who thought she was trans and now she's realizing that the l and the tq are at odds with each other now you're telling her i'm inclusive of the lgbtq is she going to trust you no she's going to think what you write you write gender affirming letters for your other clients don't know don't you know i'm not going to set foot in that office so um, I think right now we're at a, just a real crisis point because of the issues that you're pointing out, Leslie, on your channel with what's happening with the indoctrination of therapists to think one way and talk one way about gender, among other things, and how that is completely at odds with the emerging needs of this rapidly growing population. And let me bring up another fact to highlight the starkness of the situation here. There is a study that came out last year, 2022, that looked at, um, instead of asking specifically about detransition, which is going to weed a lot of people out, what they did is they looked at the compliance rates with those who had started these so-called hormone therapies. What they found is that after four years, and they, it was a meta-analysis, if I understand correctly, a meta-analysis of different studies with nine years worth of data in total. They found after four years, a 70% compliance rate. What does that mean? It, mean, it means... Someone starts uh, testosterone or estrogen, cross-sex hormones. Mm -hmm. Four years later, seven out of 10 are still doing that. What does that mean? Three out of 10 are not. Mm -hmm. That means 30% of people after four years are either dead or for some other reason, not taking these hormones mm -hmm. anymore. So it, that's, that's a four-year desistance or detransition rate of 30%. So what does that, what does that tell us about where things are going to be at or 10 and 10, 20 years down the line? Mm -hmm. Um, the population of detransitioners is going to be huge regardless of what they call themselves. I don't even care about that. You know, I care about, are we meeting their needs medically and mentally? So if you're training therapists to do this, right. And then, and then you have this rapidly emerging population of people who've been harmed by those very therapists, who's going to help them they don't trust us. They don't want our help. And damn, we actually have a lot of tools that could help if only we'd stuck to our ethics in the first place. If only we'd practiced with integrity. I do believe the counseling profession does have a lot to offer detransitioners with their complex trauma and their missed co-occurring and underlying issues. And, and, um, and they're not going to want our help. And that's our fault. Mm. Yeah, that is a that is a really scary crisis that you're highlighting. This growing number of of people who are going to be who are currently undergoing a process which just put, puts them in a in a very vulnerable position with very specific set of of circumstances that are going to be life changing and very difficult to process and move through. 
and this profession is losing its credibility rapidly. So I, you know, I, I think this is just so fascinating. I think that your passion for this is really, it really comes through. And I love the fact that you're delving in and having these fearless conversations with people. Your channel is, it's a wealth of information. It's a fantastic resource. You've got so many good interviews with, with people who have weighed into this issue and, and the broader issues around it. And I hope people will go and check those out and follow those. I'm going to put the links down in the description of this video. And please follow Stephanie. She's doing amazing work. And she's just having these, these bold and, as I said, fearless conversations, which are compassionate and passionate and, and optimistic still. I see the optimism in what you're saying. And I think that really comes through. Like you said, there's no nihilism. It's you, you are pointing out challenges and there are ways that we can move forward. Thank yeah. you. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything, any last words you'd like to, to say? Those of us in the medical and mental health professions and adjacent professions like coaching and consulting, we need to be actively reaching out to detransitioners and working on earning their trust. We cannot assume their trust. And there are a lot of things that we're doing to alienate them. I've learned the hard way. I have accidentally offended many detransitioners. No, that's an exaggeration. Don't take it that way. I've accidentally <laughs> offended a few, <laughs> a few detransitioners, uh, some of whom have just told me to go to hell. Um, one or two told me to go to hell and, uh, you know, maybe one or two ha have given me some really valuable feedback. Um, but either way I've, I've learned in the process and I've learned that there's a lot of things that, um, that the media is doing wrong, even, even the most caring media. Um, there's a lot that, um, any of us who are trying to talk to or with detransitioners have not figured out how to do yet. And, you know, I know there's not time right now to get into some of the conversations that people need to be having about how to talk to, with, and about detransitioners in a way that's respectful. Um, you know, it's, it's a learning curve, uh, you know, even for the best of us who are trying. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, even though sometimes they're going to tell you to go to hell, um, you still need to be reaching out and thinking about how do I earn the trust of this community? Mm. Not how do I convince them to trust me because they, they've been abused in the worst ways when it comes to people trying to convince them to trust them, right? But how do I earn the trust of a community that's been this badly hurt? Um, and how do we speak respectfully about their stories? How do we speak honestly about what they're really suffering through and at the same time speak in a way that is respectful and encouraging of their capacity for resilience. Um, anyway, um, yeah, that's all I'll say about that. Uh, and then just to plug the documentary again, it's at affirmationgenerationmovie.com. On Twitter, you can follow the film at 22, excuse me, on Twitter, you can follow the film at 2022, 2022 affirmation. You can follow me on Twitter at some therapist. You can follow my podcast on Twitter at some underscore therapist. On Instagram, I'm at some therapist and the film is at Affirmation Generation. Um, we really want people 
amped up to watch it when it releases February 18th. And then thinking about having some friends or family over or organizing your community for screening in honor of D-Trans Awareness Day, March 12th. If I can help with any of that, people are free to get in touch with me. Hello at sometherapist.com. I think that's all. Yeah. Well, I hope people, you know, will, will follow those recommendations and links and go check that out. I think the movie's going to be fantastic. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. And thanks for thank you so much conversation with me today. Yeah, it's so good to see you again. And thanks for having me.